Watch this immediately. Watch this immediately. Oh my god, we're back at it again. What are we at? We're at Watch This Immediately, the podcast with no dedicated opening banter of any sort. Yes, correct. we got to fix that. <laughs> Who am I? I'm Steven. I'm one of your hosts. With me, as always, is your good friend and mine. Manir here. Uh-huh. And this week, we are here to discuss a classic, a true masterpiece. That's right. We've all been waiting for this. It's the discussion of the album Rocks by Aerosmith, 1976, produced by Jack Douglas, featuring the classic Aerosmith lineup, Steven Tyler on vocals, Joe Perry on lead guitar, um, Tom Hamilton on bass, Brad Whitford on rhythm guitar and also of lead guitar, Joey Kramer on drums and percussion. This is the be-all, end-all of American 70s rock and roll. Wait a minute. Brad Whitford? Brad Whitford. Was Bradley Woodford named after anything? He was not. Okay. No. All right, just checking. But the fact that he was that there is an actor named Bradley Whitford did not go unnoticed. Mm-hmm. When I first heard of Bradley Whitford, I was like, "You're Brad- fucking with me, right?" Yeah, Brad Whitford doing things. <laughs> just fathering children, naming them after himself. He's the George Foreman of exactly. Seven Rock. Exactly. Bradley Whitford the fifth. <laughs> Bradley Whitford Jr. the third. <laughs> All the little Brads. All. Le Bradford. Wonderful. Oh, yeah. That's a solid name, Le Bradford. Le Brad- if I had had a child, that would be Le Bradford. Fantastic. Maybe that'll be my next cat. <laughs> yeah, that'll be a fun Le Bradford, yeah. yeah. Maximina, Ollivander, and Le Bradford. All right. That's a trick. Make it happen. All right, we're getting another cat. Rachel does not listen to this podcast, but. I'm putting her on notice. It's been promised. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just have to tell her, if you listen to the podcast, you would understand we're getting another cat and exactly. we're naming it Le Bradford. Exactly. You know, it's it's it's, it's kind of like uh, ignorance is not a defense to the law. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Not listening to the podcast is not a defense for not knowing that we're getting another cat. That's correct. 100%. I'm glad you're on board. You're going to be... <laughs> you're going to be investigating my untimely murder. <laughs> I mean, you can always count on me for support and things that are ill-advised. Appreciate that. Yeah. You're a good friend. Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, this is this is Aerosmith Rocks. This is an album that I recommended. Um, we have done some albums of length mm-hmm. on this podcast. Um, some of them were at a length I would call oppressive. <laughs> um, <laughs> others were far more manageable. I think the shortest album we've done to this point has been around the hour mark. Um, didn't we do... We, we did one that was fairly short, didn't we? Um, well, I guess Master of Puppets is probably closer to 45, yeah, 50 minutes. Yeah, that was fairly... That was, that was short. So, uh, but we've... We've done some bladder busters on this one. We have. We've done some albums that you should not imbibe and then go driving. <laughs> because they will put you to sleep. <laughs> So I wanted something of an example of the hit it and quit it genre. This is about, I think this is 35 minutes. Yeah. It was, you know, it was, so this it was succinct. Pressed on two sides of vinyl. So a little something short. Wait, so how long was each side of vinyl? like? 
uh, they would end up being usually a maximum of 20 minutes back in the day. Interesting. Um, some bands, you could always, of course, stretch it longer. Um, from what I understand, it's best to keep an album relatively short because the sound quality is better. Um, or at least that was the defense that Van Halen used hmm. for having relatively short early albums. Because Just, they said that the sound quality was better if you have a, a shorter album. Oh, I'm assuming it has something to do with the, the grooves, the grooves yeah. but how exactly that works or whether David Lee Roth was just being a shit as his, his normal way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do know that most albums back in the 1970s, 60s, early 80s tended to be around, you know, anywhere from 35 to 45 minutes. I mean, if, if the deuce taught us anything, it was a time of, like, people having a lot to do. So True. So you don't want to you don't want to sit down with a two hour and fifteen minute album. There was no time for like fish and and bands like that to just play like thirty five minute jams. There were if you were a Grateful Dead fan, but if you were a Grateful Dead fan, you didn't have much to do. No, no. you were hanging out. Exactly. You weren't you weren't a doing stuff kind of person. <laughs> exactly. So, but this this was an album for the cocaine seventies. It was. And there was plenty of cocaine and heroin and every pill imaginable and, of course, alcohol flowing on this album. Uh, For Aerosmith, there is no better band to trace a cresting wave of creativity um, than with this album. This is their fourth album. Mm -hmm. Um, The first album was Aerosmith's second, Get Your Wings, third, uh, Toys in the Attic, which is their most famous from this period. Yes. And then Rocks. And you can see them consistently get better over the course of those four th- those four albums, and then it drops like a stone with their next album, Draw the Line. Um, when was the next album released? Uh, about a year after this one. Oh, okay. Or a little more than a year after this well, was one. Was it just like they were on a year cadence, basically? Yeah, most bands ended up doing like a year, um, you know, album tour, album tour, album tour, and releasing an album once a year. Okay, cool. Yeah, that policy kind of came to an end for a lot of bands once they got into the into the 80s. Yeah, well, I mean, there's been artists who, I mean, you know, have spent, I don't know, 15, 20 years between albums. and Yeah. Metallica's never been particularly fast about anything. It's just that that model is not sustainable and, and yeah. wasn't sustainable beyond the days when your record company would pay for your cocaine. Exactly. Go-go powder. And actually, it was, and I'm sure this was the case for a lot of bands, the record companies did pay for their cocaine. Oh, it was built into, you know, secret things into the, the rider. Of course. And money for them to buy cocaine. You know, it's like, uh, you got to pay for all the equipment. Might as well pay for the cocaine. You can't, you can't, dig, up a, you can't dig up a construction site without a bulldozer. <laughs> a salient point. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this was recorded... Um, at the band's rehearsal, sta- or rehearsal space, which was called The Warehouse, using the Record Plant's mobile recording unit, uh, produced by Jack Douglas. And that explains a lot to me. It's got a raw sound to it. Yes, please, but please continue. I don't have much more um, to go on other than that. Uh, released in 1976, it is four times platinum, and uh, let's see if I've got the, see what Wikipedia says about the charts. Was the toys Toys in the Attic sold more than this one, didn't it? Uh, over time, Toys in the Attic has sold more, and I think it sold more at the time too, because Toys in the Attic had two big hit singles. Um, this one did not have as many radio hits as Toys in the Attic did. 
Um, It has proven to be a strong seller. Um, It reached... Number three on the Billboard 200. Oh, okay, cool. So it was it was a hit album at the time, um, but the bigger radio hit was definitely Toys in the Attic, and Toys in the Attic has sold more albums. Okay. Um, just for our sanity, the charts for Toys in the Attic, come on. Um, Toys in the Attic actually only reached 11 on the Billboard oh. 200. I think this is one of those situations where a band gets their big hit and then the next album does better, even though it's not the, as big of a um, hit with the public gotcha. because there's anticipation for it. Right, right, right. Fair. Um, but, yeah, um, Toys in the Attic currently, if Wikipedia is to believe, sits about nine times platinum as opposed oh, wow. to Rocks is four times platinum. Okay. So, um, in my opinion, Rocks is the superior album, but you and I were discussing back when I had thoughts on this. Um, we were supposed to record this like two months ago. Yes. And I had a lot of well-formed thoughts at the time, <laughs> and I was trying to remember them this afternoon at work as I was listening to this album. Um, but uh, Rachel and I moved. Yes. From, uh, I'm no longer a Kansas citizen, a, yes. a Kansas city, and I'm still a citizen of Kansas, but, uh, yes. I will still call myself a resident of Kansas city probably for a long time to come. Um, it's only but, a matter of time until Kansas city, um, yeah. absorbs Lawrence. Lawrence will be annexed by Kansas city over the next 10 years. Yeah. Uh, suburban sprawl is a great thing, but yeah. Um, but we, we were discussing this, uh, about how I think this is one of those situations of uh, being first by being virtue of being second. Um, this happens a lot in sports where um, yes. people kind of crap all over the team that didn't win, for example, the Super Bowl. Um, we've experienced that over the last month here because the Chiefs right. just won the Super Bowl and everyone's been talking about how great the Philadelphia Eagles were. were. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But the thing that did not win a competition or the thing that came in second is elevated in the opinion of the public because it did not come in first. So we look at the thing that came in first as being overrated because we see it so clearly. Correct. Um, and so we kind of elevate these things that don't come, you know, that, that don't come as soon to mind. Um, and as a, a fan, I can tell you Aerosmith fans tend to be like, okay, well, yeah, Toys in the Attic was the big hit, but everyone knows that Rocks is the better album. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so we're shitty about that. Um, but the thing is, I do think Rocks is a more consistent album. Um, I think from top to bottom, the there's one song on there that I think is not of a piece with everything else on it, but the overall quality of the album is such that I think you could pick about any song off of this album and it is an absolute banger, which which is not the case with Toys in the Attic. Which song would you say is out of place? The song that I think is least among equals would be Sick as a Dog. Okay. Okay. That is the album that, or that is the song. Musically, I think that song is an absolute delight. I think it is a top-notch song in the music and instrumentation. Uh, I think the lyrics don't make it for me. Mm. Well, I mean, like, for me... The first thing I noticed when I was uh, listening to the album was uh, on Back in the Saddle Man, mm-hmm. Stephen Tyler's just screeching in the in, in in the chorus. Yeah, and I'm wondering, like this. So this was an artistic choice. Absolutely. Okay, just checking because I'm like, well, Stephen Tyler is not a singer. He never was. Okay. Um, he, he doesn't sing pretty. Yeah. He's called the demon of screaming for a reason. 
you know, Stephen Tower is about a feel. He is not about, um, you know, I can't think of anyone who has a, at the moment I'm not thinking of any pretty voices in rock and roll. He's not Steve Perry. Mm. Mm. Um, this is, this is a man who sings for feel. He, he does not sing, um, to move you with the beauty of his melodious pipes. Oh, dude, like, I mean, I, I will say that to me, at least, um, Back in the Saddle, like the second and third songs, I can't remember what they're called, but those were, those I think were like the best. And for me, at least, the other songs sounded almost like a live set. And, and when you said that this was recorded in their rehearsal space, I'm like, oh, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And so it was almost like you had three singles that were recorded in the studio and then you had an extended kind of kind of jam session in a sense because the other songs to me at least sounded like fairly fairly similar hmm which is not to say it was bad I mean it's well, a no. solid album but and also you're allowed yeah. to have your opinion no matter what yeah. I welcome dissenting opinions um so the the first three tracks are Back in the Saddle and Last mm-hmm. Child which were um the two of the three singles off of this album. I can see that. Um, Rats in the Cellar. Mm-hmm. And Combination is the, the fourth one. That round, rounds out the fourth side, or the, the first side. Okay. Um, now, I do see what you're saying. Um, the the back half of the album does kind of play a little bit like a live set. It yeah. does... Um, it, it was just... It, it sounded like it was recorded in a huge space where, you know, it's like the instruments weren't, like, right on the the mics. Yeah. It was, like, a very kind of airy sound. And that's what a lot of bands were going for at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, this album was recorded in uh, 76. This was right when live albums were starting to become a big thing. Um, the previous year... Um, I don't know if it was the first one, but one of the first big live albums was Kiss Alive. Um, Kiss had been floundering. Their first three albums had also like maybe 350,000 copies apiece. Um, and the record company was about out of money. So they were like, well, um, I guess we could do a live album. That won't cost us too much. And so they, they put out a live album um, four times platinum. Damn! So... Um, huge hit, and a lot of bands hadn't been doing live albums at that time. Live albums were suddenly a big thing, and everyone was trying to get um, either do a live album or get a live sound, um, get a raw sound. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so there, you know, there were bands like Journey that were going for studio perfection, and you know, the the, the former Beatles who really loved seeing, okay, well, what can we get out of a studio? What kind of sonic landscapes can we make in that? And the American bands were, um, especially the East Coast bands, were more about how raw can we make this sound? Because they, they, they were playing in clubs in New York, like Max's Kansas City or the Mud Club or CBGB. Mm-hmm. The sound in the New York club scene in the late 60s and early 70s, 70s was raw as hell. And so you can see a definite East Coast, West Coast difference because if you compare the bands that you're hearing from 
the West Coast, you're getting the Eagles, you're mm-hmm. getting Journey, you're getting mm-hmm. the Flying Burrito Brothers, you're getting all these bands that have a very clean sound, a very, um, a very what can we get out of a studio sound? Right. Like how um, how polished can we make this sound while still maintaining a human quality to it? And whereas on the East Coast, they're like, we want this to sound like the audience is two feet away from us. Exactly. We want this to sound it. Um, we want it to sound intimate in a different kind of way. Um, you know, we want it to sound in your face and unpolished. And that was, um, I think, part of the glory of rocks in particular. They they unintentionally pushed it a little too far on their following album, and it is a disaster. Mm. Um, if you think this one sounds um, sounds a little raw, you should hear Draw the Line. It is. <laughs> I, I might play a little bit of it just so you can <laughs> hear the contrast. Um, but yeah, it's funny you should mention how the you know, the back half kind of sounds like a, a live set. This is not the track listing that I grew up with. Oh. Um, I don't know if you encountered this much, because I don't know how much like 70s music you listened to when you were um, like in the in your high school junior high age um, i was so I, I would listen to i don't know i had an eric clapton phase this might have happened on a couple of old clapton ones mm-hmm. um when a lot of these you know all of these were of course recorded and tracked for records yes um and when uh, in the 70s what we would consider cassette tapes either didn't exist yet or um, they were subservient to eight track tapes Hmm. Um, because eight track tapes, basically the, um, it was records and then you had eight track tapes because those could be used in, um, car stereos. Mm -hmm. And then after a while, um, the mini cassette was developed and those, that's what we were familiar with. And eight tracks started to be phased out. Um, well in making these mini cassettes or micro cassettes, mini cassettes, I'm sorry. Um, they would frequently not line up uh, in times well. Hmm. And so you wanted to have, let's say you've got 20 minutes of tape, and one side of the album happened to run 22 minutes, and the other side happened to run 17 minutes. Mm -hmm. Well, you might juggle some of the songs in order to have them sit evenly on both sides of the tape so that you don't have, like, you know, five minutes of dead space on Mm -hmm. the end of one Mm -hmm. side. Um, And so... The cassette version of Aerosmith Rocks, um, let's see, side one was Back in the Saddle. This is the tape. Uh, Back in the Saddle, Last Child, Mm -hmm. Sick as a Dog, and Nobody's Fault, Um, which is in itself, that's a decent first side. It's not the the all-time banger that this side one is uh, but so the second side ended up being rats in the cellar combination get the let out licking a promise and home tonight um that makes for a better second side for me because i think yeah. um rats in the cellar is 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 a, a good song to have on the back half it is a great side opener yeah uh, i don't think it's a good album opener i don't think it'd be great to start the whole album with this but it is a great side too i don't know back in the cellar is a good one. good Good album opener, man. Yeah, I think Back in the Saddle and Last Child, that's a, one of the better one-two punches mm-hmm. of anything I've, mm-hmm. I've heard. Uh, but Rats in the Cellar in combination is a pretty big opener for side two. Um, so I wasn't even aware of this track listing until um, I bought a copy of the album 
on vinyl. Interesting. I think in, in high school I found a copy in, in vi- on vinyl, and then I rarely listened to it because I was like, well, I, I don't have a record player in my car. I don't have a record player in my bathroom. <laughs> you know, I, mm. So I was uh, familiar with the, the cassette version. And so that, that one shakes everything up a little bit and kind of, kind of evens out the peaks and the valleys right. um, and makes it... Because, um, yeah, if, if I had listened to the tape version of this... I believe it it would have had yeah as you said more of an more of an even sound but it, to me it sounded like they front loaded all the songs that were in my opinion better you know and and side one and then the rest of it sounded kind of like okay well we happen to have a concert so here's the results of that I think that's fair and I think um, rats in the cellar in combination leading in to get the lead out is kind of inspired. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas get the let out following sick as a dog and nobody's fault and get the let out probably kind of sounds like wankery because it, mm-hmm. it admittedly, um, possibly overstays its welcome a little bit. Cause I think get the let out starts really strong and then they kind of just jam on it for a little while and then it fades out and comes into licking the promise. Mm-hmm. Um, but ends with home tonight, which is kind of a slight song, but, I think it's also kind of a banger of a closer. Mm. Um, I always enjoyed that. Mm. They released that as a single at uh, at the very end of the album cycle. Didn't do anything for them, though. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would say that it, it doesn't make it, it doesn't surprise me that "Back in the Saddle" and um, uh, Ch- "Child of Mine," "Sweet Last Child," "Last Child" were, were successful singles, and that um, you know "Home Tonight" was was not. Yeah. Well, and they, let's see. Uh, Back in the Saddle on Last Child still mainstays at their, um, at their live set. I've heard them do them plenty of times. Um, How many times have you seen Aerosmith? I can't tell you right now. I'd say probably fewer than 10, but probably seven or eight. Damn, nice. I've seen them more than I've seen any other band. Hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, but I've seen him do Back in the Saddle and Last Child pretty much every show that I've seen him do. Uh, Rats in the Cellar I've seen him do once, and that's that's a great song live. Um, combination they do on occasion. Uh, that's a song where Joe Perry sings lead vocals, and so that's again, an occasional spotlight for him. And uh, the last time that I saw them, they did do a little bit of Home Tonight. Um, Lickin' a Promise and Get the Let Out were bigger... Uh, kind of mid-set songs for them back in the 70s. And I think Sick as a Dog was performed on, on this one in the, the following tour. Nobody's Fault, I don't think, has ever been played live. Hmm, interesting, interesting. Uh, which is, that's strange to me because I would think that would be um, a good live song. It's got a good galloping beat to it, and I, mm-hmm. I always found that one a lot of fun. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, what do you think? You know, I as I said, um, I thought it started super strong. I, I really liked um, Back in the Saddle and Last Child. Like those were those are the best. Rats in the Cellar. I was kind of a little more mixed on. Still pretty good though. And then you know the rest of it was a very kind of homogenous sound to me. Interesting. Just because you know it it had that it had that you know live raw feel to it. Whereas I th- I think that the uh, the Back in the Saddle. Um, and Last Child and, and um, 
was the last one? Third one? Uh, third one's Rats in the Cellar. Yeah, Rats in the Cellar. I think those were, those sounded to me like a little more produced. Hmm. You know, as if, as if like that had been done in a studio, whereas then the other ones were just a jam session that happened to be caught on tape. Okay. But, you know, overall, this is an album I could certainly see myself or anyone really listening to, you know, when you're out in the summer day, you're in the car, you're like, I feel like listening to a, a, a fun and an engaging short album. Yeah. No, this is one of the quintessential um, Camaro. Exactly. Mullet. Exactly. Albums. And I'm here for it. It's a good time. <clears throat> it's dark without being... Oh, there's a raccoon outside. Yes. <laughs> that is a large raccoon. <laughs> yeah, it comes here and eats cat food. You guys are... Jesus Christ. That's a small bear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How do you even feel safe leaving? Will you walk me to my car later? <laughs> He's around, you know. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Does he eat any intruders? I mean, I hope so. We haven't had any intruders in a while, so maybe he's been eating them. <laughs> y'all, y'all, you can't appreciate how big that raccoon was. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, th- this album and really all of the Aerosmith albums from the, the first one up until, I think, Pump was out when I started listening to Aerosmith. Um, these are among the soundtrack of my um of my youth, because I was I started listening to Aerosmith at the point where music means the most to you in your life. I was like twelve, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and I I think I bought a copy of Pump with some Christmas money because yeah. Love in the Elevator was really big at the time, and um, I remember not exactly understanding the concept. It's like I feel like this is about sex, but I don't really know what living it up when I'm going down means. I'll understand when I get older. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, fell in love with that album. And then I bought a copy of Aerosmith's greatest hits. And then like my entire junior high experience was spent buying these tapes Mm. and, um, and listening to these. And I can still remember, um, did you ever get a tape that was caught? Like got caught up in your oh, yeah, machine and then, you know, you didn't have the money to replace it. So you just kind of had to live with it. Yes. Providing it didn't break. Yes. Um, this one, uh, I specifically, it was in Get the Lead Out, um, right in the middle before the final uh, iteration where he sings, hey, good looking, what you got there cooking. Um, I can still hear how the tape warbles. Yeah. Um, because I listened to that so many times and uh, that copy it got caught at that point a bunch of times, but Weird. it never broke. I had Weird. various other tapes that broke multiple times and had to be rebought and everything, but my copy of of Rocks kept getting caught in that one spot, but it it never broke. But I can still hear that. You know, it gets up to a certain point with that, that wailing guitar solo right before that final verse, and I can hear it with <laughs> And that's as much a part of the song as the actual song is to me in my memory. So I have a lot of great memories, a lot of, um, you know, I, I had a, a friend at the time, he and I were really into to Aerosmith and we discovered it together. And it's just one of those, nice. um, one of those happy memories of, uh, my youth and my, 
Like my grade school and junior high years, I didn't particularly enjoy that much. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are like the music were the happy memories for me. And so this this one definitely um, slots right into that. And it's my favorite Aerosmith album. All of their old albums have something for me, even the ones that aren't that good. Um, but this one is the one where I feel like the music, the quality of the music and my memories of the music uh, line up. Gotcha. To be where the like the music is as good as the memories that go with it. Yeah, and it's it's hard to find an album like that. Yeah, because you know when you're a little kid, I mean you're kind of a knucklehead and just kind of listen to whatever, and you like you don't you just don't know quality at that time. Sure, just and like, that's, that's part of the reason yeah. why music hits you so good. The, <laughs> it hits the you first, so great. yeah, but the first time you hear something that's like super good, you're like, oh wait. This is much different than what I had heard before. Yeah. So much better. And I was coming from a um, a contemporary Christian yeah. world at the time. And I, I had I had a Guns N' Roses, maybe both of the Guns N' Roses albums at the time. That was the first thing. I went from like the Bill Gaither trio to GNR Lies to Appetite for Destruction. Damn. And so I had like a copy of Appetite for Destruction, I think, when I was five. <laughs> or not five, what am I saying? In uh, when I was in fifth grade. Okay, yeah. I was gonna, that makes a lot more sense. I was like, wait a second. No, I, I think I had a copy of Appetite for Destruction when I was in fifth grade. Golly. Um, which is the best possible time to own a copy yeah, of that dad, album. Your dad, like, your dad, like, just, just, I'm just picturing him with the long hair. Hey, he did, and you were both like headbanging. Yeah, he did not, uh, he never got into Guns N' Roses. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, but fortunately, nothing I got into. After that, uh, was anywhere near as misogynistic and um, Axl Rose is not known as a uh, as an advocate of female rights. Yeah, uh, nothing that I listened to was that uh, was that filthy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so uh, Motley Crue, Aerosmith, uh, Van Halen, those were a lot easier for my father to get into, and we bonded over that. God, I still remember the Motley Crue, the Dirt. It's one of the few books I've had to put down because I was feeling like physically ill reading it. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. No, the band is terrible and every, everything they did was terrible, but some of the songs are good. <laughs> yeah, you know, it is. Broken clock. <laughs> you can count on to be right twice a day, man. Yes, sir. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely agree um, with your point, especially with this song lineup. Um, it, it hits hard in the beginning, and then it does. Um, th- three songs in a row are of a kind of a similar tempo. Yeah, and yeah. so I can see definitely, exactly. especially as they're getting to get the lead out, which in its sound is kind of monolithic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of my, it's one of my favorites, but it also feels like a missed opportunity to me because it does kind of it starts really strong in the first minute. I love that riff, that because that is that is a great swaggering riff, um, and it like the first minute and a half are a really strong swaggering song. And then they just kind of go into jam territory after that, which is not always my favorite thing to do. So I can see, um, you know, a three song lineup of sick as a dog, nobody's fault and get the lead out. You, I can definitely see how somebody would be like, we can wrap this up. We can, (laughs) we can start looking for the doors. You know what? Um, uh, Speaking of jams, hmm. I would say that at the time, this jam seemed like pretty epic to me, but over the years I've grown to dislike it. Like Smooth, the song with Rob Thomas and Santana. Okay. 
you know when when they start doing the uh, the guitar like uh, solo, mm. I was like back back in back when it first came out, like two thousand. I was like, oh man, he's like really shredding. <laughs> but then as I listened to it more, as I became more exposed to it, I don't know. It's like this is not a good jam. It's not an amazing song. I think Smooth is a good gateway song, though. Yeah, solid. I think it is it is a slight little thing that kind of washes over you, and if it makes you more interested in Matchbox 20 or Santana and you end up liking those bands, fantastic. Oh, dude. But no, the, the song itself, if it doesn't necessarily hold up to scrutiny, and I think that's why it's such a huge song, mm-hmm. is it's, it's, a great, it's great to be glossed over. Mm-hmm. It's great to just, you know... Pass by on the radio and listen to a couple of minutes of that, and be like, the "Summer good. of 1999 truly was muy caliente." Yes, yes, it was. And then move on. <laughs> you know, I, I think like so. Aerosmith also, to me, seems like one of those bands where there's a lot of like prancing and 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 showmanship. Now, yes. In the 70s, not as much. But, yeah, Steven Tyler is a definite prancer. He's a definite, uh, you know, dart around the stage and entertain the crowd kind of guy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, to bring Santana up again, um, I went to a Santana Rod Stewart concert. Mm-hmm. Interesting double bill. I know, right? And so you could totally tell. Like, with Santana, he only cares about the musicians. Mm-hmm. Because he had, like... People of all shapes and sizes on his on his band. Like there was a fat dude who just like randomly decided to bust out a few bars of Roxanne <laughs> at the end. Like when because Santana was like, yeah, you know, this is my band, and he was just like introducing each person, and they could like you know just have a quick like just do a quick riff on yeah. their instrument. And then you see Rod Stewart come out. He's got, like, so he's, you know, got his Rod Stewart suit on. And there are two women flanking him with saxophones, <laughs> pretending to play them. And when I saw them, I'm like, those women are not playing those damn saxophones. Sexist. Come on. I mean, you might be right, but I still. I mean, come on, man. You cannot, you cannot dance like that and play crisp sax. Maybe you can't. Maybe I can't. <laughs> God damn, that raccoon is huge. Sorry. Kid, Gertie just came downstairs. Will she eat the raccoon? No, she's afraid of anything. You've got gigantic cats. Why can't they eat raccoons? Sorry, continue. They're afraid of cats. Yeah. But, you know, just seeing, like, the difference between Rod Stewart just being all showmanship all the time mm-hmm. and the music being very obviously, like, piped in from the back... Whereas Santana was actually playing and, you know, like they would go on these little jams. I would say that Aerosmith perhaps in the 70s were more Santana, but uh, later on maybe more Rod Stewart. I disagree with that. Um, Aerosmith was never about, uh, um, I don't necessarily think, I, Santana is not a precise musicianship. There is a definite musicianship, but I, I don't feel like they're, um, I don't think like he's ever been particularly a technical musician, um, but he is a definite groove-oriented 
um, jam musician. Mm-hmm. Aerosmith was never that. Um, they can jam. Mm-hmm. They don't tend to. They tend to be more about song construction. Gotcha. Um, but they were always... In the 70s, you have to understand the concept of stage entertainment as we know it now did not exist oh, yeah, I mean, in, in of terms of rock concerts. And that's that also comes back to KISS. Um, and Pink Floyd, uh, even though we don't think of Pink Floyd and KISS being the same type oh, no, of, of thing, it. they were both very much about, okay, we need to... We need to have visual spectacle. We've mm-hmm. got 15,000 people here. Mm-hmm. We want them to feel like they got their money's worth for paying their $5 a ticket. Oh, yeah. Um, and so um, most bands that weren't Pink Floyd or Kiss um, were just standing on a stage. You know, you the lights went down. Everybody walked out on stage. The lights came up. You waved. You started playing. Um, mm. And so... When did Steven Tyler then start like rushing around the stage and stuff? Uh, that was more in uh, the. It was about the permanent vacation era. Um, it probably so that was eighty seven, if I'm not okay. mistaken. Yeah, permanent okay. vacation was eighty seven. Um, you know, and a little bit in the like the album before that, which was called Done with Mirrors, and they were they were kind of clean and sober then. But Steven Tyler's big thing was, um, you know, I, I heard in a, an interview with him, he was like, yeah, I wanted to dance around more on stage, and I thought I was dancing around more on stage in the 70s, but I look back at myself now, and I was just out of my mind on cocaine and booze and heroin and pills, and so I, I'm just standing there. Mm-hmm. I, I felt like I was doing all sorts of crazy stuff on stage back then, but for the most part, I'm just hanging out standing there. Um but, but yeah, that was the way you did it. I mean, even Pink Floyd, for the most part, they themselves were just standing there mm-hmm. on stage and nobody was moving. Kiss was the first band, not the first band, but one of the first bands, Kiss, Alice Cooper, to like bring in this kind of movement and explosions and mm-hmm. almost bring, bring kind of a Vegas stage show concept into it. And then other bands appropriated their own little bits of that. Is Alice Cooper, is he from Detroit as well? Yes, Okay, yeah. I could see that then. Detroit's solid. A lot of big American bands from Detroit. Mm-hmm. Nice. So, um, so yeah. Uh, I get Van Halen kind of also brought in a, a, a lot of movement and a lot of high energy, but that oh, was yeah. in the late 70s. Oh, yeah. Well, or, and, yeah, David Lee Roth, for sure. Yeah. yeah. David Lee Roth was a definite that's his, that's his run vibe. around, jump around the stage kind of guy. Yeah. That's his vibe. Yeah. So, those are the thoughts that I have on rocks. Do you have any questions? No, no. You've you've actually, in the course of your discussion, answered a lot of the questions I did have. Okay. Do you have any thoughts? I mean, you've, we've we've discussed your thoughts, but I think I've. No, no. As is characteristic when when I'm the one presenting, I yeah. I think I've done most of the talking. So no, you're good. I mean, I would say like this is an album I would definitely listen to again, mm. and. It's something that yeah, if I'm if I'm just like rolling down the down the highway, I can see you listening to this. Put a little pep in my step. Yeah. A little boogie in your butt. Yes, sir. Yes, a little sir. jingle in your jangle. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. But yeah, I like I like the album overall. I think it was a solid album. Cool. Now it's time for the rating. Well, I'll let you go first because my rating's going to be a surprise. 
you know, can't say it's a cultural touchstone to me at least because you motherfucker, I didn't know about it that much. I like I didn't know I didn't really know about it because my first exposure to Aerosmith was "Dude Looks Like a Lady," mm-hmm. and um, you know, this this is a bit of a different sound for me at least. That's true. And so uh, you know, I would say that our our uh, podcast um, rating scale is from the bottom all eyes on me mm. disgraceful <laughs> the beige carpet mm. the Atari Lynx and then watch this immediately or no cultural touchstone and then watch this immediately mm. I'm gonna give this an Atari Lynx I think that's acceptable Mm-hmm. For me, this is a cultural touchstone, but I think to be a watch this immediately, I think we have to both agree on that. Yes. And well, that? yes. Or the one of us has to be so grievously wrong that the other person is just like, you know what? I don't care what you're talking about. I don't care what you say. I don't know. It's a watch this immediately. I feel like a watch this immediately has to be a joint decision. You are more into harmony than I am, so... Yeah. I, I'm just saying, if we are both to make a statement with this podcast, okay. for the for us to say, watch this immediately on a podcast called Watch This Immediately, for us to make that decree, it is a statement of quality. Fair. Fair, 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 fair point. We have, to, we have to make a joint statement on that. Okay, I agree. It has to be notarized, <laughs> just like we did for Smokey and the Bandit. Yeah, exactly. The documents are on file, <laughs> registered with every Secretary of State. <laughs> So, sure. call your SOS. They've got it on file. You yes, check they it. do. Yes, they do. You're going to have yourself a good time with Smokey and the Bandit. <laughs> Hell yeah. So, I, as much as I would love for this to be a watch this immediately, um, I think this is one of the great albums, possibly the great American rock and roll album of the 70s. Really? Um, tell me a better one. I mean, there's so many bands. It's true. Could it be the Eagles? Absolutely not. Could it For be a, a rock and roll album? It cannot be the Eagles. So the so seventies, seventies. The Beatles are out because well, I mean, let the, it be. The, came the Beatles out, are done. They came that came out in nineteen seventy. Yes, but let it be. Well, first of all, that's it's not American. There, okay. There's American oh, sorry, rock. American. Yes, you're right. I'm let sorry. let it be. I I have issues with anyone who would call let it be a rock album. Because I, I, you can't call Let It Be, you can't pl- place Let It Be next to the first Van Halen album and say these are both the same type of rock album. I just can't. I agree with you on that. Like, the Beatles, with the intricacies of their sound, are are not, yeah, that, that's not Van Halen's vibe. Well, not only that, but rock and roll... The way that the Beatles played it on Let It Be. There's like, I'm trying to remember, I used to have a copy of Let It Be a long time ago. I, I think there's like one song that kind of moves it all on Let It Be, and I, that's Get Back. Oh, yeah, Get Back. It's good as hell. Because, I mean, what else is on there? Two of Us, mm-hmm. Dig a Pony. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess one after nine oh nine. So there's like one of one after nine oh nine and get back. Those are the only two songs on there that really feel like rock songs in the same way that like 
the seventies um, concept conception of rock exists. Yeah, they were, they, they were definitely headed in a different direction. Yeah, it's, John, it's definitely rock in a sixties sense to me, but not rock in a seventies. I don't know. Yeah, John Lennon was going to start making like those those weird ethereal sounding albums, and yeah, Paul uh, McCartney was on his way to Wonderful Christmas Time. The less said about that, the better. <laughs> but I think, I mean, the, the two that come to mind for me are the first Van Halen album and Rocks by Aerosmith. Those are, I think, the two best 70s American rock albums. Okay. I dig, I dig what you're saying. I will, I will accept this point. Okay. So how, how do we do a split decision? Is it, this is a, uh, um, a cultural links. Okay. The cultural Atari links. Okay, okay. An Atari touchstone, if yeah. you will. Yeah, it's it's uh, the deci- it's 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 by a judge's decision here, not a knockout like usual. Yeah, if if either your wife or my girlfriend cared to listen to this podcast, right. I would or Aerosmith, I right. would say either of them could make that decision. Correct. Neither of them listened to either. No. So. That's I mean, where that's, we are. That's how we're able to get you a third cat. That's true. <laughs> Be on the lookout for that cat. Now, the Bradford. Next time, you know, talking talking to you about this album, listening to you, and and discussing the Aerosmith kind of raw sound. Mm-hmm. You know, I was I had a few different things in my mind as to what we should do next, and uh, I, I I think we had sort of settled on something before the before the podcast. But I'm calling it audible. You're going to switch it up? Yes. God damn you. I'm going to give you one of the best rap debuts um, from the East Coast as well. Go on. Ready to Die by Notorious B.I.G. Okay. All right. Yeah. Now, how long is this album? Oh, it's about an hour. Okay. Uh, or maybe slightly more. But I'm keeping track of the disparity will, in times here. <laughs> I will say this though. To me at least, the production and the lyrics are top notch. Alright. And so it's it's definitely not it's not going to be like the Tupac album where it all sounds the same. So help me God if it is. Because the pro- the producer on the BIG albums um, all those producers, there were different guys, and the beats were very dynamic. All right. Yeah. But just so you know, I am keeping track of the disparity between raw run times. Hey, man. Of what I've, what I've demanded of you and what you have demanded of me. And after about, like, three or four years, I'm going to cash all that in. We're going to watch Berlin Alexander Plotz. Damn. It's like 23 hours long. Wow. <laughs> We're not going to do that. But I'm not going to feel bad recommending a long-ass movie to you at some okay, point. Okay, okay. So be ready for it. You know, we can it's gonna be watch nice. uh, Nymphomaniac Part 1 and 2, maybe. I don't know. No, it's not even going to be anything that's mildly titillating. <laughs> okay. It's going to be boring. You're not going to you're not going to see Mia Goth's tits. It'll it'll be like uh it'll be like that that I think was it a David Bowie or uh was it uh dude from Talking Heads who had the 8-hour movie? Of, like, just the building. That doesn't sound familiar, but that does sound like something that David Byrne would do. Yeah, yeah. 
that absolutely sounds like something. Because, yeah, that's it, it also was, sounds like something that uh, David Bowie would have done in his Berlin phase. Yeah, because because there was a movie that was made by some rocker that was yeah it was just like <clears throat> they filmed a apartment building from morning until night and nothing much happened except maybe the lights came on and things moved here and there. I'm going to have to do some research on this. Yeah. I'll cash in my chips. We'll watch that. We'll make a day of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll just be like... Just order some pizzas. Just, just hanging out on the couch. Be like, wow. That kite was pretty awesome. Uh-huh. Did you see that bird? <laughs> pretty good bird. <laughs> but yes, with that being said... I'll lock up our phones, too. So <laughs> Next time, uh, it will be Ready to Die Notorious B.I.G. <clears throat> Yeah. I'm here for it. Let's do it. I'm learning more about rap. Yes, sir. And various rapists. Yes, sir. So until next time. Farewell. (laughs) I thought you were going to say it first. No, I couldn't remember. (laughs) I haven't known. I've not been finding any way to start this and any way to finish it. (laughs) Well, with that, it is finished. Bye. Watch this immediately.